please take your Bible to Exodus chapter 3, and uh, we'll read the entire chapter together as we'll be studying the last portion of Exodus chapter 3. This is a, a part of narrative genre where God is having a conversation with one of his human servants. And so in Exodus chapter 3, the word of the Lord says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what you have done and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you will not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. You can be seated, and children, you can be dismissed to children's church. Exodus chapter 3 is covering a portion of this conversation between God and his servant Moses. The conversation continues into chapter 4, but for today we conclude with chapter 3 and seeing the way that it breaks down into two questions. Moses asks God the question, who am I? And then Moses asks God the question, what's your name? And in the answer to those two, we learn a lot about ourselves. We learn, particularly, the revelation of God. Who God is. I told you last week, if you took everything that had been recorded in Scripture prior to this event and stacked it up and pulled out the pages where God tells people about himself, you would have very few pages. And so we are reading one of the introductions of God to man. When it comes to knowing the I am, maybe some of you heard a sermon on the radio that I heard this week. I was driving and had the radio on and I I heard a, a speaker and he was talking about how joyful worship should be for the Christian. How exuberant we should be about coming into fellowship with God and coming into church and lifting his name up. And he gave an illustration to try to prove his point. He said that people are sometimes enamored with lesser things than God. He told a story about a woman who had gone into an ice cream shop and she saw there waiting to be served his ice cream an actor named Paul Newman. Paul Newman, the Academy Award-winning actor from those popular movies like Cool Hand Luke and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And about half of you are nodding along. And the woman was so awestruck at seeing Mr. Newman. By the way, if the younger generation walked down the salad dressing aisle, you'll know who I'm talking about. So enamored by seeing Mr. Newman, that she could barely function. She was awestruck. She finally says hello to him and gets her ice cream and heads for the door. She gets outside the ice cream parlor and realizes, I don't have my ice cream. She turns to go back in the door, and just then Mr. Newman walks out. And he says to her, are you looking for your ice cream? Uh, 
Yes, thinking she had left it in on the counter. Actually, you put it back in your handbag when you put your wallet away. And the speaker gave a very effective illustration. I give credit to whomever that was I was listening to preach. He told that story. But his point was, why are we not so impressed with our God that we become that sort of giddy and awestruck in our worship? And that's a valid point. He was making a legitimate point. But as a preacher, I thought it's a good question. Why is it that way? Now, probably a little over half of you, Mr. Newman died in 2008, but probably a little over half of you walking into an ice cream parlor and seeing there Mr. Paul Newman would have been more excited about your ice cream than Mr. Newman. And you see, in that, I think, is the point. That woman must have known him well. She must have known how entertaining he was in those very popular movies. But if she had not known him, she wouldn't have been impressed at all. He would have just been another guy. Exodus chapter 3 is telling us who God is. And I think revelations like this one are the sort of fuel to real Christian worship. This text is more than any part of Exodus, absolutely not about Moses. It is definitely about God. Particularly, what God is like. Moses asked the question, what will I say your name is? And you probably understand in biblical literature that to ask someone what their name is is not to say, you know, how do I spell that? It is literally to say, what are you like? What's your nature? What would those people who interact with you come to expect you to behave like? That's what Moses is asking. What are you like, God? In Exodus 3, 13 through 22, we are studying four revelations of what God is like. There are four in particular. First, God introduces himself as the God. Not just a God, but the God. He says, when you go back and tell the people in a polytheistic culture, a bunch of gods, tell them the one true is the one that sent you. Tell them the I am has sent you. Next, God reveals himself in his compassion, in his mercy. The one true God over all else, creator of everything, looks down on his creatures of the dust and takes pity because they are being persecuted, heavy-handed taskmasters. And God reveals himself not only as the one true God, but as a God who cares for his creatures. That's what we saw last week. We saw God giving his name. What will I say? And for the first time in Scripture, God gives the first person, verb form, of the name Yahweh. The one who is, or the one to be, or the one who causes, it could be heard. The name of God is understood as being the creator and sustainer. Lord over all that exists. Lord over what is, and Lord over what happens. 
God over the past, present, and future. Moses, hearing the introduction of God, describe himself actively as the one who's never been caused, but causes everything. Not a new God, but the true God. And a God who cares. That's the beautiful dynamic, right? About God, that he is awesome in glory and splendid in majesty and cares about a bad day. That's beautiful. And that's what we saw last week. When God says, I've seen, I've watched over, and I'm going to do something about it because I care. Now this week. The first week, he introduced himself, monotheistic, the one true God. The God who has compassion and mercy and cares for his people. And then this week, we'll see the next two revelations. The first one is this. God reveals himself in sovereign might. Look at verse 20. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, they will let you go. This portion of Revelation begins with, I know. The one true God who cares knows. So in these two verses, we see God revealing himself in sovereign might. Now the first part of God's sovereign might is his wisdom. We probably don't think about wisdom often as a mighty expression. Like, oh, that person is so prominent and powerful. They're intelligent. We, in our culture, we don't tend to prize wisdom as an expression of great might. But when it comes to God, his omniscience is all-powerful. Psalm 147.5, great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The psalmist says, God is all-powerful. I'll prove it by explaining to you his wisdom. What does it mean for God to reveal himself to us having all-powerful wisdom? Omniscience. Probably a lot of you have heard me preach on the attributes of God. And it was probably 15 years ago that I was significantly influenced in my understanding by A.W. Tozer, who wrote the two-volume work, The Attributes of God. And in trying to understand the infinite characteristics of God, Tozer put them in a negative. What does God know? And we could spend our lifetime scratching the surface of that question. What does God know? Or we could right now, in one part of a sermon, answer the question by saying, what doesn't God know? And that's the answer. Or to state it another negative way, God cannot learn anything. God cannot become aware of something. There cannot be something that God realizes. When he says, I know the king of Egypt, he is revealing to us 
his omniscience, his all-knowingness. That knowledge reaches even those things that would supposedly have just been learned before human history. You see, we probably rationalize his knowledge of events by saying, well, yeah, he's not learning them now. But way before we can even imagine time being, God looked ahead and he learned it then. Terror of terrors to have a God who we depend on, who ever learned anything. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him to be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God knew that Pharaoh wouldn't accept the message of his prophet. God knew it would require a strong hand that wasn't human to overcome the fallen will of Pharaoh. Moses is already struggling with the commission he's getting. And God doesn't withhold this information Pharaoh's going to reject the request. This is not comforting news, but it is almost immediately. God says, you won't get it done. Your arm's not strong enough. So I will. You just go tell him what I'm going to do. That is comforting. God shows his full knowledge of his creatures the way they think, he announces to Moses that Pharaoh is going to display the hardness of his heart. That's a theme we're going to pick up on again in chapter 4. God reveals his might in what he knows. Secondly, in these two verses, God reveals his might in his omnipotent hand, his all-powerful acts or actions. The first reference to a mighty hand is not a reference to God's hand. I know that he would resist a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand because a mighty hand is not going to get it done. No hand of a human will accomplish what I'm sending you to make Pharaoh do. So I will make him do it. No single human threat would intimidate the most powerful potentate in the known world. Just, just let's, let's put ourselves a little bit in the shoes of the messenger. Go today and tell Vladimir Putin to stop warmongering in Ukraine. I'm sure that you'll deliver it very effectively and he'll turn from his ways. Or so many persecuted Christians in North Korea. Somebody, just go tell Kim Jong-un to stop. Stop. Let Christians have freedom of religion in North Korea. 
Somebody should go tell him. That's the message that Moses is receiving to go talk to Pharaoh. And we sit here and say, no matter how effective or articulate I am, I'm not going to persuade him to change. He has set his course for a reason. And my plea is not going to affect that. And God says, you're right. So I will stretch out my hand. And it will be done. The solution for what otherwise would have been an impossible impasse is divine intervention. The solution for what is otherwise an impossible impasse is divine intervention. That's good news. God would strike the Egyptians with a display of his omnipotent power. He would punish them for not submitting to the spoken word. He would divinely unleash plagues. Not for human persuasion, not for display, but to effectively produce his will and allow the people to go. God reveals himself to us in his might. Now I want to say, before I leave this point, um, that hypocrisy is for all of us a human coping mechanism. It's for all of us a human coping mechanism. We all, to some degree, are tempted to apply hypocrisy to our concerns, things we're trying to cope with. Judgment, for example. We are concerned that we will be truly judged. And we may assume that we could apply hypocrisy, like external behaviors, that aren't genuine, they're not true. But I, I can display these external things and I'll get through the judgment. And I hope that when God reveals himself this way to us this morning, you see that he is all-knowing. Would you just listen to what the prophet Isaiah says? The Lord said, because this people draws near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, even while their heart is far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment only taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonders, and the wisdom of their wise men will crumble. The discernment of their discerning men will vanish. You who hide, deep from the Lord, your counsel. You who try to trick God, whose deeds are in the dark, and you say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn the thing upside down. Shall the potter be thought of like clay? That's a thing made, should say to its maker. He didn't make me, or the thing formed say to the thing who formed it, he didn't form me. You see that? You see the delusion of hypocrisy? The delusion of assuming we can hide. We'll just pretend to be something we're not. God reveals himself as the all-knowing judge. So, so I want to say before I move away from this point, that if, if there is in you some sense of hope, that you can deceive 
the righteous judge. And I hope that this text of Scripture eliminates that. Eliminates that false hope. And then steers you to the only place where hope is. Substitute atoning. One who is worthy to stand in our place and bear the judgment that we deserve. That is Jesus Christ. So I I just want to say that the revelation of God here as all-knowing should eliminate those final bastions of self-righteousness. Okay, I admit I'm not good, but I'll pretend to be. God is all-knowing. Turn to Christ Jesus. Receive righteousness that only he has and be covered in it as in the blood of Christ. God, one true. God, compassionate. God, mighty. In knowledge and power. And then fourthly, God reveals himself in his sovereign covenant keeping. Verse 21. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you're not going to go empty-handed. I know no strong hand's going to persuade Pharaoh, so I will. I'll stretch out my hand. And then 21, and I will give. So what we see here is two times God saying, I've made a promise to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to care for you. This is our covenant together. I've made this promise. So I will. I will. When it comes to the the will of Pharaoh, the, the fallen will of Pharaoh, I will overcome it. When it comes to the people, listen, listen. do you understand that the last two verses here describe um, the Exodus beginning with Israelite women going to the Egyptian women and saying, um, I would like to have the household jewelry and clothing. And the Egyptian women, who just two chapters earlier had been willing to throw all the Israelite babies in the river, now say, okay, here's the jewelry and the clothes. How did that happen? How did it come from well, yeah, we'll throw your kids in the river. You're just our slaves to, oh, you want our possessions? Okay. And they're going to give them away. And God says, in this way, you will plunder them. The word plunder invites us to understand that Israel is going to go to war with Egypt. But not a traditional bloody weapon war a holy war. And God says, I will win this for you because I've promised to. He is a covenant-keeping God. God would orchestrate events so that Egyptians would willingly give their valuables to Israelite families, even though just recently, they had been willing to throw their newborn babies into the Nile River. God makes this miraculous transformation take place. 
because God would defeat the enemy at the heart level, they would become willing to give the Israelites anything they asked for in order to help them on their way. This, this, is, this is illogical. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about the definition of a, of a, a miracle? In other words, the burning bush is the first time we see miraculous activity. Yes, it's surprising that Moses was placed into a basket and set among the bulrushes in the Nile River and didn't die. I mean, that's, that's impressive. But he didn't die because Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe and heard the baby crying. That's explainable. But the bush burning but not burning up, that's miraculous. This is really incredible, right? The change at a heart level that these people experience where they go from being willing accomplices to murder to being benevolent gift givers. That's supernatural. God's all-knowing power is operating again here, though. I want to step back into his might. What does he say about the clothes? What does he say about the clothes? He says, you'll put the clothes on your kids. Mm. Our kids, there's a whole generation of Israelite kids that drown in the Nile. We don't have kids. And we're just going over into the land of the Canaanites. We won't have kids by the time we get there. And God says, uh, you will. The kids that are going to grow up in the wilderness are going to need clothes and they're going to need stuff. It's not going to be a quick trip. Because you're going to sin. And your faithlessness is going to cause a generation to have to pass away before the generation of your kids gets to go in. When it comes to a covenant, What's most important? Just really quickly, I'm in a season right now where I am shopping for a vehicle. What a treat. And I went into a, a local dealership and found a, a salesman I really appreciated. And so we'd, we'd been working together and came time where it was like, are we doing this or not? And as you know, I said, at that price, I said, this vehicle doesn't have any warranty left on it. I said, I, I just don't think I can spend that much money for a vehicle that doesn't come with that security, that peace of mind. And he says, oh, he tells me, oh, if something goes wrong, we'll for sure take care of it. And I laughed out loud. Same place, Matt, same place. And I thought of you, and I laughed out loud. And I said, come on. I said, we both know that's not true. When it comes to a promise made, what's most important? The promiser. The promiser is what's most important. So when God says something like, you will be my people. I will lead you. I will bless you. What's most important is when God says, I will. The God who says it. The God who reveals himself to us in these pages of Scripture is what's most important. Are God's promises dependent 
on anything else. Uh, you know what the word synergy means? It means when two things work together to accomplish something. So there's energy that's synergy energy, okay, versus um, single energy, mono energy, synergy. Does God make promises and then say, we think or we hope? Well, sometimes. He does, doesn't he? Sometimes he certainly does. God makes conditional promises. Totally honest and totally relevant. God says, if you do this, then I do this. If you obey, I bless. If you disobey, I punish. God says, that's how it will work. When it comes to the promise that we saw God make throughout the book of Genesis, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when, when God tells Moses, to go tell the elders, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying the covenant God because he made it with Abraham. He repeated it to Isaac and he repeated it to Jacob. He uses those three names because he's saying the covenant God has sent you. So we're talking about unconditional Abrahamic covenant. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling like I have a little extra time and so I'm going to fill it and then I'm going to run out of time. That's what's going to happen, just so you all know. I am feeling like I have a little extra time. So I'm really impressed with myself, and now I'm rambling. Okay. The Abrahamic covenant, I just need to say a word about it, because it's the bedrock of God's relationship with his people through the book of Exodus. Do you know the account of the Abrahamic covenant? Like, sometimes when we enter into covenants together, we, we both say, okay, you'll do this, I'll do this, and then we'll sign on the dotted line, and we, we make these promises. In the Old Testament, they would do things like they would give, take their shoe off, and they would give the shoe to the person and say, here, this is a sign that I'll do my part in this promise. You know, in the Abrahamic covenant, <laughs> you know what Abraham did? Passed out. Passed out. God takes an animal, pulls it in half, which is one of the things you'd do in a covenant. You'd pull an animal in half, and the two parties would walk in the middle of the pulled-apart animal. God does all that stuff while, while Abraham is passed out. That's what we call an unconditional covenant. Abraham didn't contribute to his part of, of the bargain, okay? God made promise with Abraham. And that's what God is saying he will do. I will deliver them from captivity. I will then make for them a nation. I will bless them. I will bless the whole world by them. Through them will come the Messiah. God's promises, as it relates to this covenant, are not dependent on anything else. The promise that the church could never be taken out of his hand isn't conditional. The promise that even the gates of hell itself won't prevail against his people is not conditional. It's not synergistic. God's not depending on someone else to do their part so that he can accomplish what he said he would do. The promise that for every person who God began the work of salvation, he will complete the work of salvation, bringing them not only to new births, but to mature, or what we call sanctified, Pastor Will referenced this morning, we were giving out Bibles, that God would not only produce new birth, but maturity. Those promises aren't waiting for someone else to show up so that God can accomplish them. Could any of those things God said, I will do, be undone by a rogue 
agent. Those, those atoms that wander about the universe independent from God's rule? Of course not. Of course not. God is revealing himself to us here as a God who is worthy of all of that worship. Uh, probably about 10 years ago, I was helping a family move to South Dakota. I volunteered to drive a truck. They were from our church. My wife and I drove a truck and took them over to South Dakota with another family from church. And on our way back, we stopped at a barbecue place on the south side of Minneapolis. I think it was maybe a famous Dave's or something, but we ordered up at the counter. And we were standing with my other friend. My friend's name is Jeff. Jeff Sauer. We're standing next to Jeff Sauer. And I said, hey, I said, those two guys in front of us, I think one of them is all pro running back Adrian Peterson. Now, I'm a football guy. And so I was like, <laughs> I watched him run in college. He was playing at the time for the Minnesota Vikings. And he was ordering his food in front of us at Famous Dave's. And I was like, Jeff, I think that. I have, though, I don't want to bother people, right? I don't want people to know that I'm excited to see them. So I was playing it kind of cool. So my friend Jeff, they order. And my friend Jeff goes up and taps the one guy on the shoulder. And he says, oh, Mr. Peterson, could my friend and I get a picture with you? And I said, Jeff, that's not Adrian Peterson. That is. But Adrian Peterson was cool about it, and we got a picture with him. Now, like the Paul Newman story at the beginning, I saw Adrian Peterson. I know football. I was impressed by what I knew about him. My friend would have taken a picture with some random buddy and posted it on Facebook and tagged Adrian Peterson. Exodus 3 is causing us to see what is impressive about the God who we worship at our most fundamental level of existence. Who we are most fundamentally is worshipers. And therefore God saying, I'm the one true who hasn't been caused by anything but causes everything. Even though transcendent, caring. And not just caring, interceding. I'm able to do it. I have all the knowledge power and all the power power. And I'll do it because I said I would. When God made promise, he could swear by nothing greater than his own name. He is the one true, compassionate and merciful, sovereign in might and faithful in covenant keeping. He is awesome. He is holy. He's our God. The name of God. 
understood to be his character, his function. And I would say to you that if worshiping God is to be our greatest delight, then beholding God is to be our foremost priority. If worshiping God is meant to be our greatest delight, then beholding him has to be our greatest priority. You see, the gospel itself isn't a call to behave. It isn't. The gospel itself is the call to behold. Seeing him. And worshiping him. Let's pray. Father, this revelation is a blessing. It's beyond comprehension how you set us, you, you form us, you fashion us, you breathe into us the unique capacity to worship. You yearn jealously over that worship and then reveal yourself to us. Ransom us from the bondage of idol worship and make yourself known. You accomplish everything for the purpose of our life in worship. You are awesome in glory. You are holy, majestic in splendor, long-suffering, and merciful, and always the giver of the good gifts. And in your wisdom, the giver continues to get the glory even this morning. Thank you for prompting again our heart of worship to what is worthy in Christ's name. Amen.